Welcome to the Solidarity Winnipeg podcast. Solidarity Winnipeg is working to lay the basis for an eco-socialist political organization. By that, we mean we are a small group of like-minded people who work in a coordinated way in community groups, in unions, and on campuses to build grassroots power, to educate people, to be effective eco-socialist organizers, and to build support for the long-term goal of breaking with capitalism and starting a transition to eco-socialism. Because Winnipeg is located on Treaty 1 territory, we acknowledge that Treaty 1 is the homeland of Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, Dene peoples, and the Métis Nation. The Canadian state has carried out genocide, ethnic cleansing, and forced removal of Indigenous people in order to clear the land for settlement by Europeans. The colonization and oppression of Indigenous peoples is not a thing of the past, it continues today. But around the world, Indigenous peoples are leaders in the fight against capitalism and environmental destruction. We have a lot to learn from Indigenous cultures and teachings that will help us heal our relationship with the land and with each other. So as this episode of the podcast goes to air, a lockout is happening at Welcome Place, uh, which is the name that the Manitoba uh, Interfaith Immigration Council's work is is done through this is an organization that provides services to newcomers uh, refugees in particular in winnipeg and management of this organization has locked out its workers and is demanding really really vile concessions from them they're demanding that the workers uh, take less vacation time less vacation entitlement and uh, also give up wellness days that they have and these are workers who've already given really significant uh, wage reductions in the past, and, and there've been a lot of jobs cut there uh, at Welcome Place, connected to cuts to funding to the agency. Yeah, and unfortunately, due to the pandemic, there's only so much we can do in terms of uh, in-person support. But we are recommending people. You can find the information on our social media at Solidarity Winnipeg on Facebook or Instagram or Saul Winnipeg on Twitter, and you can find the information there to contact management and either call them, email them, tell them that this is not okay, um, and that you support the workers of Welcome Place. Hello and welcome to the Solidarity Winnipeg podcast. In this episode, we're going to talk about socialist ideas and lessons from history that shape our politics today. I'm Teddy, and I'm here with... I'm Posey. I'm David. And we're going to get into it. Okay, so socialists need politics to guide our actions today and in the future. It's not enough to have extremely general principles like we need to replace capitalism with eco-socialism, we're opposed to all forms of oppression, or working class struggle is the key to changing society, and then pragmatic ideas about what to do tomorrow. We need principles, and we need to know what to do tomorrow. But to help us decide what to do and not do tomorrow, and how to do it or not do it, we need politics that serve as a compass. We need politics that at least point us in the direction of where we want to go longer term. Our politics should give us tools for helping us figure out how to respond to predictable and unpredictable events and situations. For example, we think mass social movements are the key to changing society. That's one reason we think it's a mistake for leftists today to pour energy into electing left-wing people as NDP candidates or electing other left-wing candidates. We don't think it strengthens movement organizing, which today is very weak in most places. Has electing Leah Gazan as an MP done anything to strengthen community or workplace organizing in Winnipeg? This isn't an argument against voting. It's about prioritizing where we put our energies. Our politics should also give us guidance about how to do things. When we're working in broader groups or in unions, should we promote making major decisions in ways that involve as many people as possible in the process with votes on clear proposals? Or is it okay just to have a few dedicated activists make those decisions? Our politics need to give us guidance about those kinds of questions. So we're going to talk a little bit about what Solidarity Winnipeg stands for, what our politics are. We're united by a basis of unity that includes a section on vision, 
And we've also adopted a few policies. Our vision is we envision transforming society to achieve social and ecological justice on an anti-colonial basis. This can ultimately only be achieved by replacing capitalism with a more democratic society, not driven by profit, eco-socialism. We affirm that the key to changing society is building powerful mass social movements while caring for each other. Political organizations committed to social transformation that help build such movements are also needed. So I'm going to explain a bit, or I'm going to read out um, our eco-socialism policy, which we just adopted a few months ago. So uh, Solidarity Winnipeg, uh, we support growing support for socialism internationally. More people are saying that a different, better society is possible. Growing talk about eco-socialism in the Green Party of Canada's 2020 leadership race, for example, reflects a clear understanding that the socialism we need must make it a top priority to address the ecological crisis caused by capitalism. But today, just as throughout history, there are rival understandings of what socialism would be and how it could be achieved. For us, eco-socialism would be a society in which production would be democratically planned and all forms of oppression uprooted. The relationship between people and the rest of nature would be completely transformed. Efforts would be underway to repair ecological damage. Class division and state power would have withered away, along with commodity production and wage labor. And if this is fully achievable, we cannot be as certain that it is. It could only be the result of a long process of so social ecological transformation. Progress towards eco-socialism would be measured by how much democratic ecological planning had replaced markets and by how much the relationship between humanity and the rest of nature had become non-destructive. So this vision of eco-socialism differs from some other views. For some, eco-socialism merely means governments regulating capitalism in the interests of social and ecological justice. This would not uproot the system that causes ecological and social crises. For others, eco-socialism means a social order in which the state directs production for ecological aims and human benefit, not profit. This wrongly assumes that socialism is defined by state control of the economy, not the democratic control of society by ordinary people. This idea often reflects the mistaken belief that societies of state-owned economies and one-party states run by, quote, communist rulers were or are socialist. This statist vision lowers our horizons for freedom. Today, the tiny minority of capitalists rule even where capitalist democracy exists. A transition from capitalism towards eco-socialism could only begin after capitalist rule is replaced with the radically democratic rule of the working class majority and, in countries where they exist, peasants and other independent producers. Working class rule requires new institutions of democratic popular power in all spheres of society. The rule of a party or any other minority is no substitute for the democratic self-government of the majority, no matter what its politics are. Only self-governing people themselves could advance the transition towards eco-socialism. No ruling minority could do so on their behalf. Because the transition towards eco-socialism is only possible when the working class itself democratically runs society, in the here and now, eco-socialists should always try to promote the most bottom-up, participatory, and democratic ways of organizing. These increase people's capacity to organize ways that point towards one day taking control of society and democratically running it ourselves. And that's a nice bridge to the policy called From Theory to Practice that Solidarity Winnipeg adopted just before the pandemic, actually. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole policy, but just summarize it. Um, what it, it tries to explain is how uh, if we understand that ultimately we need very, very powerful mass social movements to break with capitalism and start a transition to eco-socialism, uh, there's got to be a connection between that and how we participate in the very low levels of community and workplace action that we can be involved in today. And so the policy argues for what it calls a strategy of independent mass action, trying to bring people into motion on the issues that they're willing to struggle around, uh, and then through being involved in that action, deepen their understanding of the issues. So it's not a question of talking down to people, but organizing actions 
which are able to give expression to opposition to the policies of the ruling class at the level of understanding that people have reached at that time. So it's all about trying to bring people into motion, but at the same time, always keeping the movement independent of the ruling class. And this is informed by a really important idea from Karl Marx, uh, which is that the key to people changing on a large scale is for them to change themselves. And that can only happen through their own experiences. So this strategy of independent mass action is different from a liberal approach, which is just about lobbying uh, or trying to persuade sympathetic politicians. It's also different from social de democratic politics, which is all about electing left candidates into government office while unions do their thing in collective bargaining. And it's also different from an ultra-left strategy, which substitutes actions of a small number of militants for mass organizing. And it, the policy talks about how we should be trying to promote a democratic self-organization, building people's skills and reducing their reliance on politicians, union officials, NGO staff, or simply experienced organizers. And that we should be guided by the principle that an injury to one is an injury to all. So those are some of the, the key ideas in that policy. And if anybody wants to look at those policies or read the text of them or think about it, you can find them all on our website, which is solidaritywinnipeg.ca. So having policies and having a vision and having different ideas is one thing, but thinking about where they come from is another. So where do socialists get our politics from? Whether we're aware of it or not, whether we're, aware, whether we're aware of it or not, we draw our ideas from one or more left tradition. All the political ideas we encounter come from somewhere. One way to think about left traditions is as a resource of ideas for people to use today. We think that the next left needs politics that are neither social democratic nor Stalinist. In this episode, we're going to discuss several experiences from history that we think are helpful for socialists today. We're going to talk about Rosa Luxemburg, internationalist working class opposition to war and imperialism, politics that recognize that struggles against racism, gender oppression, and other kinds of oppression aren't just important for oppressed people themselves, they contribute to uniting the working class as a whole. They matter for people who don't experience that specific form of oppression, and they're part of the struggle for socialism. We could have chosen many other thinkers and lessons from history to talk about. And this is just a small sample. All right. So I'm going to talk about Rosa Luxemburg today. And uh, we've actually been reading her recently in our little Solidarity Winnipeg book club. So she's fresh in my mind, which is why I chose to, to speak to, about her today. And a brief background for those who maybe don't know who she was. Uh, Rosa Luxemburg was a Polish Jewish woman in Germany at the beginning of the 20th century. She was a Marxist thinker, philosopher, and economist, a revolutionary socialist. And she was imprisoned a lot, and she was murdered in 1919. And um, that's kind of how a lot of people know her. She's kind of treated as a martyr um, in the left. It seems as though every, every camp loves her for some reason. Um, and something else that's important to know about Luxembourg is that her ideas were developed, tested, and challenged in real time. So, you know, she wasn't, none of us write in a vacuum or have ideas in a vacuum, but her context was World War I, the Russian Revolution, mass strikes, and revolutionary struggle in Germany. So she was writing a lot about what she saw, what she would like to see, organizing principles, strategy, a whole lot of stuff. So. There are a lot of things that you can learn from Luxembourg. I'm just going to talk about a few today that I think are relevant to the politics of Solidarity Winnipeg. Um, and the first is her dedication to, to democracy and the self-emancipation of the working class. So Luxembourg believed that a socialist society could only be achieved through revolution and that revolution needed to be from the masses. So not every socialist you run into is a revolutionary socialist. Some people think that, um, you know, you can vote in the right people, but there doesn't need to be a, a complete full break from uh, the society we live in now. Uh, Luxembourg thought that there needed to be that complete break, which is revolution. Um, and if revolution was achieved through a small militant group or a vanguard party, Luxembourg thought that that would succumb to counter-revolution and not last. She thought that power needed to be built through 
workers' councils, soldiers' councils, unions, and labor organizing. And it was not enough to just kick those who are currently in power out and replace them with the good guys. There needs to be existing alternative um, democratic structures to challenge the state that already exists under the old power. And she also wrote about revolution being a process of both tearing down the old and building up the new, and the transition from capitalism to socialism must be democratic. So I'm quoting her here that under socialism, the great laboring mass ceases to be a dominated mass, but rather makes the entire economic and political life its own and gives that life a conscious, free, and autonomous direction. She's also known for saying, uh, through the fight, we learn how we must fight, which is a pretty awesome rallying cry. Um, and by that, she means, you know, through the process of engaging in struggle and resistance is where our revolutionary capacity comes from. And that's something David mentioned earlier and from theory to practice. So that's just the idea that, you know, the process of struggling changes people and they learn how to fight for themselves. And for Luxembourg, this was not just a moral or ethical question, but also a strategic question, right? You know, how do we actually achieve the world we want? She thought we need, we need the masses to do that. It can't be a small group of people. So the second idea I have, um, that I want to talk about from Luxembourg is her writing on reforms and reformism. And, you know, there's a lot more than what I'm going to say now. Um, but I think it's relevant because one of the big questions that we face today in 2021 as socialists, and I guess socialists of all times up to now have faced, is just, you know, what is worth fighting for? Um, how do we use our limited time, energy, and passion? And you can probably think of a lot of things now that socialists uh, are fighting for, you know, paid sick days, higher minimum wage. Uh, do we fight for the Canadian state to recognize Indigenous rights and treaty obligations? We fight for pharmacare, dental care. We fight to defund police forces. You know, there's so many things that we could fight for. There's so many ways that the current society uh, is awful and needs to be changed, right? But all those things are reforms. So they are modifications of the existing power structures that make life better for the working class and the masses of people. So Luxembourg did not believe in reformism as sufficient for the path towards socialism, but she did make the case for how and when we might fight for reforms. So, you know, I said earlier, she was a revolutionary. Um, so she thought we couldn't achieve socialism without a revolution. But she also thought that that doesn't mean that we should sit around and wait for the masses to get on with it. Um, you know, after all, we are a part of those masses, right? Um, and that the fight for reforms can be significant and they can be a way to work together to build solidarity and our capacity for doing more. So reforms won't get us out of capitalism, but the fight for reforms can still be worthwhile. And, and it's important to know that when you struggle to reforms, to not kind of fool yourself into thinking that you're, um, that you're being revolutionary, right? So you could still kind of keep your eyes on the prize of, of revolution. And something I would also add to this, it's not something obviously Rosa Luxemburg talked about directly, but just for us to think about today that uh, just because some reforms are worth fighting for doesn't mean every reform is worth fighting for. Some really are a waste of time, <laughs> uh, in my opinion, at least. Um, but that's worth analysis, debate, and discussion among your comrades. Um, so. I don't know, I was trying to think of an example of potentially stupid reforms. Um, this week is the NDP convention, and I saw that one of the things that was being discussed was a change of the design of the Canadian flag. Don't think that's a horrible idea, but I don't think that that's worth my time and energy as a socialist to fight for a more inclusive Canadian flag, for example. And then the last idea of Rosa Luxemburg's that is significant for my politics and for um, the politics of Solidarity Winnipeg is her internationalism. Um, so she was an internationalist. She was anti-imperialism and anti-war. You know, borders aren't socialist. Um, and this again was a matter of both what is right and what is necessary for Luxembourg. So socialists must have solidarity with workers around the world if we want to, ch to change it. Um, and this is very relevant today, and I could talk more about it, but I know Teddy's going to talk about internationalism at length, but I think it's important to note that Luxembourg was also, um, you know, important thinker when it comes to 
internationalism and also how imperialism relates to capitalism. She's kind of known for that as well. So I think there's a lot in Luxembourg that can help us develop some guiding socialist principles. Um, the examples I have are, you know, you can ask yourself, is what we're doing building consciousness uh, and democratic power by and for the masses of people? If so, good, keep doing that. Uh, are we trying to cut corners and substitute ourselves to the masses? Maybe we should rethink that. Uh, and is what we're doing nationalist or reactionary? If so, cut it out, that sucks. Uh, so socialism or barbarism, that's my, that's my book report on Rosa Luxemburg. Thanks, Bozy. I yeah, that's I love the flow chart at the end of <laughs> is this helping? Is it raising consciousness and democratic power for the masses? Good. And then the other flow chart pieces of what's bad. That's that's it's simple, but it's like important. Um I'm gonna that's a perfect segue talking about Russell Luxembourg's internationalism for what I'm gonna say. So I'm gonna talk about uh internationalism, anti-imperialism, and the left here. And it's probably a good place to start talking about what imperialism is. So capitalism is a system of competition that results in conflict between capitalists, both within a country, capitalists are competing with each other right here in Canada, and also between countries as well. We have more in common with the working class in other countries than we do with capitalists in our own countries. And that's kind of like the basis of internationalism. And therefore, we have to take an internationalist position, which is to say we oppose capitalist conflict between countries and instead challenge capitalists both at home and show solidarity with the working class in our own country and in countries around the world. That's like kind of the broad sketch, the points that I'm going to try to like show you by getting into more depth. So the first one about capitalists in competition with each other within and between countries. It's like totally normal and we've been socialized this way our whole lives to think of our country, Canada, as something that unites us. And even though we know that there's definitely inequality, um, there's, there's still this idea of like a Canadian identity, this national identity. But capitalism is a system of class exploitation, and the capitalist class dominates and exploits the working class right here. This is obviously done with the goal of making profits, and capitalists are in competition with each other in a race to win profits gained through exploitation. So even like within our own country, we know that even though there's this idea of like this kind of unity and Canadian identity, there is a class conflict just because the system of capitalism is a class a class-based system where one class exploits the other and that's capitalists exploiting us in addition to competing domestically capitalists also compete with other capitalists in other countries and this is not surprising considering that capitalism is a global system um, markets to sell products or services um, supplies of resources or labor all these are spread across the globe it's totally interconnected and it's more interconnected than ever before the government isn't neutral in all of this. Um, the government and parties and powers, um, the state as a whole, which is the bureaucratic, the legal, and the military institutions and structures of a country, work together towards the interest of creating an economic and political environment that encourages capitalists to invest and expand economically. This creates a dynamic in which the uh, in which states actually dominate other states economically, politically, and with the military and warfare in order to create advantages for capitalists within their own state. And that's imperialism, when, when a state goes and um, imposes on a state that's weaker than it. In a book by Todd Gordon called Imperialist Canada, uh, he gives an example about how Canada participates in the International Monetary Fund, which imposes economic policies called structural adjustments on numerous countries uh, around the world. But in this case, I want to specifically show the example of Latin America, which he brings up. Even though these policies are framed as a means to end poverty and another kind of like pro-human language and buzzwords of the time, you know, advance equality and raise every boat and all that kind of stuff. 
in reality, these kinds of policies have the goal of expanding and opening markets, um, cutting public services and social safety nets and in those countries and making it easier for Canadian corporations to go in, access cheap labor with fewer protections for the workers there and exploit the people in the environment and walk away with huge profits. And since it's capitalism, those profits get reinvested back into those capitalist businesses so they can further expand and have more of a competitive edge against the ongoing competition and the cycle goes on and on and on. And that is obviously first and foremost to the benefit of the capitalists who are doing it. Whether they're Canadian or not, it's it's not in your and my interest. It's like the the owners of those companies trying to expand their profits that get the most benefit of it. And they exploit the working people in those countries to do it. Even though I'm talking about imperialism and talking about how Canada goes to other countries and imposes on them and how countries have this competition between each other, which favors the capitalists there. In this conversation and where we are here, I think it's worth noting that the Canadian state is a settler colonial state and it continues to harm Indigenous nations within its boundaries um, in the way that the land acknowledgement notes at the beginning of this podcast. Um, so internationalism is both anti-imperialism when you impose this kind of imperialist domination. And it's also recognizing that the working class has a common class conflict against capitalists across borders, rather than seeing capitalists within our own countries on our side, like that myth of a Canadian unity that I mentioned at the beginning of this, simply because we're in the same state or part of the same nation. Um, the cruelty of stronger groups dominating weaker groups existed before capitalism. There's nothing natural about that, it, but it didn't begin with capitalism. Um, but the internal logic of capitalism, which is like intense competition between capitalists and the pursuit of profits makes this much worse because um, capitalism increases the stakes of the competition with more competitors who um, from industrialization in the industrial revolution all the way up to World War One and onwards have been developing tons and tons of technology in order to compete with each other. And then also um, because of this advancement of technology, again, motivated by creating a competitive edge for profit, um, it easily gets converted into tools of imperial domination. So whether that's like using the technology to mass produce materials out of steel that can turn into cars, um, and building materials or into tanks and machine guns, this is exactly possible by the kind of environment that capitalism creates of um, extreme technological advancement fueled by all this competition. And socialists have outlined these problems over 100 years ago. In fact, when I was researching this, um, one thing that came up was in 1907 in August, uh, for about six days, there was an International Socialist Congress um, held by the Second International, which was uh, a, um, a meeting of an organization of communists and or socialists from around the world who'd come and meet and talk about how socialism could be achieved in the world and what to do. So in 1907 in August in Stuttgart, Germany, um, there was this meeting. And at that time, um, it was before World War I, which started in 1914, but there was a ramping up of inter-imperialist inter conflict in Europe. So this meeting in 1907 um, had the socialists from around the world have a debate about how socialists should orient towards military and state conflict. Um, Vladimir Lenin was there as a notable person and many other socialists from around the world. There was a divided opinion, but in the end, they adopted a resolution that declared that the working class must be opposed to all imperialist wars and do whatever it can to oppose and avoid the war before it breaks out. And if it does break out, then whatever they can do, they must do whatever they can do to end it as soon as possible. Um, and then if a war does break out after the war, use the weakened economy to push for a break from capitalism and into socialism. However, even though they passed that resolution in 1907, um, after lots of discussion, lots of debate, lots of writing on it and corresponding, 1907, they come up to this resolution, they pass it in the way I just described. But when World War I broke out in 1914, the majority of the socialists backtracked on this and ended up supporting their own countries in the war. 
which actually ultimately led to the flop of this organization of socialists, the Second International. But worse than that, um, didn't do much to use the knowledge and organizing and momentum that socialists had to challenge the war, to, to push back against it. Rosa Luxemburg um, spoke out against this um, very fiercely and clearly. The, in Germany, there was a party called the Social Democratic Party, and it was the largest organized socialist party in the world. And it, it took this position of the socialists um, supporting the, the capitalists in their own country. Um, this party opposed and shut down any kind of left-wing anti-war agitation. It expelled its anti-war members and supported the German state in the war. Um, and Rosa Luxemburg was a member of this party and, as I mentioned, was totally against it. So that's an example of how um, historically there was a discussion about internationalism. There was a discussion about how the left should orient against uh, imperialism. Um, there was a resolution passed that, that represented that. And then there's the lesson we can take from how that flopped and didn't do enough to push back against World War I. Um, and I think that the lessons to take from that, there's many lessons we can talk about it when we get into the discussion part, but, um, one key idea is that this competition between capitalists, uh, still happens right now. It's still part of the system of capitalism. And so imperialism and this kind of inter-country rivalry, um, whether you're talking about Canada and China or the U S and China or, uh, other countries around the world still happens right now, and we have to we have to recognize that there are um, a class of exploited people in the places uh, across the world that we have to be in solidarity with and support. So I'm going to talk about the tradition of the best socialist anti-oppression politics. So as Teddy was saying, capitalism is a system of class exploitation. It's also a system of alienation where those people who actually you know, create and reproduce society don't control it are dominated by the, the fruits of our own labor. Uh, but there are also many different forms of oppression that cut across class exploitation. So if the, the entire working class is exploited, there are many different groups of people who suffer from gender oppression, from racism, um, from other forms of oppression. And socialists have had different responses to this reality. Uh, and as we're, we're seeing a socialist revival or revival of socialist politics not so much in Canada as in the U.S., but it's it's happening on a small scale, uh, and people are coming up against this question, and we find different responses. So, unfortunately, you find some people who uh, really dismiss struggles against oppression, and they sort of deride those kinds of politics as liberal or you know rad rad lib politics or identity politics, um, and they counterpose class politics to fighting oppression, and it's a serious mistake. And then there are people who say, yes, oppression is real. Different forms of oppression are real. It's important to, to fight against it. And the best way to fight uh, against different forms of oppression is through what they would call class-wide demands. The demands that don't specifically address particular groups of oppressed people. Uh, so raising demands like a higher minimum wage or the right to housing or no tuition for post-secondary education. Um, and they put those kinds of demands forward as sufficient for the fight against oppression. But there's also, fortunately, another whole tradition uh, of socialists who have understood that struggles against oppression are necessary and important, both for oppressed people themselves and because fighting against oppression contributes to unifying, politicizing the entire working class and advancing the struggle against capitalism. So this dissident tradition in, in different forms has understood that forms of oppression are real and they're harmful in, in every case. Uh, and they harm people across class divisions, right? Um, and they go on, though, to recognize that these forms of oppression are also problems for the entire working class. They divide the working class, uh, they weaken it, and they provide grounds for people to identify with their enemies. So, for example, think about how non-Indigenous people in Canada sometimes bond with their bosses or identify with politicians uh, around bashing Indigenous people and putting forward the idea that, you know, Indigenous people are supposedly going too far with their demands, that kind of thing. You can find lots of working class people who are not Indigenous rallying to that kind of thing or identifying with it. Uh, think about all the ways in which there are lots of cis men who, uh, again, would bond with their bosses or other figures in society 
Think of Jordan Peterson, for example, um, you know, around opposition to women uh, and claiming that women are demanding too much, that they don't know their place and this kind of thing. So this alternative tradition uh, certainly tries to build united struggles against oppression. So for example, if you have uh, a, a company where you have uh, a boss that's refusing accommodation for transgender people, you need to be able to unite both trans workers and cis workers together to take on that transphobia. But it recognizes that people who are not oppressed in a particular way generally are you know, more backward when it comes to fighting against that kind of oppression. Um, you know, it's not a one-to-one correlation, but that's a, a generalization that's true. Um, and that's why it's important that sometimes oppressed people themselves will organize independently, autonomously, you know, on their own uh, as part of the struggle. You know, we need independent or autonomous organization of oppressed people themselves, as well as united struggle uh, that brings together people who directly experience oppression and those who don't to fight against it. This idea recognizes that we need to have unity against oppression, but it cannot be at a low level that's acceptable to the least conscious people. It's got to be at the highest possible level. Independent organization of oppressed people themselves, uh, for example, as a caucus or some other kind of group um, or freestanding organization, it can build the collective strength of oppressed people to tackle the form of oppression that they face. Uh, And it can also be a catalyst for change amongst people who don't experience that kind of oppression, people who experience privilege. So is there any doubt really that, you know, without the independent struggles of Indigenous people, would very many non-Indigenous people uh, have changed their understanding of Canada and come begun to understand settler colonialism? Clearly not, right? Uh, or if you think about the independent self-organization of Black people in the fight against racism, without that, how many white working class people would have ever been pushed to fight racism in anything more than the most superficial way? Clearly not. So there's this alternative tradition, and I want to talk about three different examples from it. So one is from C.L.R. James. C.L.R. James was born in Trinidad at the beginning of the 20th century, and uh, I'm not going to tell his life story, but he was politically active in Britain in the 1930s, and then went to the U.S., was there for over a decade. And in 1948, he wrote and presented a document to the Revolutionary Socialist Organization he was a part of. the name is a bit, you know, sounds antique today. It's called the Revolutionary Answer to the Negro Problem in the USA. But that was language from the time, and it was the most advanced thinking in the socialist movement in that period. And James, in this document, argues a number of things that are worth thinking about. He pointed out that what he called the, the independent Negro struggle, he said it has a vitality and a validity of its own, but it has deep historic roots in the past and in present struggles. He pointed out that the independent Negro movement is able to intervene with terrific force upon the general social and political life of the nation, despite the fact that it's waged under the banner of democratic rights, and it's not necessarily led by the organized labor movement or the Marxist party. And then he went on to say, and he said, this is the most important, that this movement is able to exercise a powerful influence upon the revolutionary proletariat, that it has got a great contribution to make to the development of the proletariat in the United States and that it is in itself a constituent part of the struggle for socialism. And so that was important, you know, recognizing the struggle of African-Americans, not just for themselves as a vital liberation struggle, but also playing a critical role for the overall advancement of of the class struggle, working class as a whole. And that way of thinking opened the door for people later to, you know, more easily understand other movements against oppression, certainly not identical to the African-American struggle, but similar important ways could play a, a similar kind of a role. So women's liberation, what was originally called gay and lesbian liberation, and so on, um, you know, sometimes play a role in some ways like what James was talking about. So that opened new, a new door uh, or new ways of thinking, clarifying uh, the relationship between struggles against oppression and the broad working class struggle. You know, we can't simply apply an analysis of 1948 of the U.S. to the United States or Canada today, but it's worth thinking about. I want to also just uh, quote from an essay, which is unfortunately not very well known, by a Canadian um, activist named Stan Gray. So Stan Gray, uh, if people want to learn about him, you can uh, go online and look up uh, an article called The Greatest Canadian Shit Disturber, 
It was originally published in the magazine Canadian Dimension in 2004. You can find it online. Uh, Stan Gray has an interesting life story. Uh, but in the 1970s and 1980s, he was working at Westinghouse, the factory in Hamilton, Ontario, as a socialist union activist. And was engaged there in a struggle against sexism um, in a mostly male workforce. And at the conclusion of it, this essay that he wrote called Sharing the Shop Floor, which is in a book called Beyond Patriarchy, it was published in 1987. It's unfortunately not online, as far as I know. Should be, though. Uh, he re reflects on this struggle that he was involved in, in this you know, mostly male workforce uh, fighting against sexism. And taking stock of the, the experience and, and drawing some generalizations, Stan Gray pointed out that the fight against sexism is, of course, primarily about um, the fight to end sexist structures and behavior. But again, to, to quote him, the fight against sexism is also a fight for men. Sexism is destructive of the labor movement. It has led men to confuse our class interests, decide with the boss time after time, to seek false and illusory solutions to our situation as exploited wage earners, and to escape the injustices of class by lording it over women. Gray went on to talk about how sexism instills the ideas and values of the enemy class in our ranks. It ingrains false ideas of manhood and strength. It cultivates individualistic attitudes and competitive behavior when what we need is collective struggle. It deludes men and pushes them into irrational actions. It channels men's anger and rebellion along destructive paths, destructive to themselves as well as to our sisters. This sexist madness is part of how capitalism keeps male workers in line. It's anti-labor and anti-working class. We should so label it and treat it. In doing so, we are fighting for our own liberation as well as that of our sisters. And he goes on and talks about how this is not just about the workplace, it's also a fight that goes on in the community and in the home. So again, I think that's an interesting example from the history of socialist politics, really trying to take the struggle against oppression uh, very, very seriously. And then just, I wanna wrap up this part with a line or two from the wonderful manifesto, Feminism for the 99%. Uh, a little manifesto that came out a couple of years ago, co-written by Cynthia Rutza, Tithi Bhattacharya, and Nancy Fraser. Highly recommend it. Uh, and in this manifesto, they, among other things, talk about the uh, reality of gender violence and uh, how it's entangled with capitalist social relations and why you know, the authors say we have to fight them all. So they write, in capitalist societies, then, gender violence is not freestanding. They've talked about how it's interconnected with all sorts of other uh, forms of oppression and exploitation. On the contrary, they write, it has deep roots within a social order that entwines women's subordination with the gendered organization of work and the dynamics of capital accumulation. Viewed this way, it's not surprising that the Me Too movement began as a protest against workplace abuse, nor that the first statement of solidarity with the women in show business came from immigrant farm workers in California, they immediately recognized Harvey Weinstein as not simply a predator, but as a powerful boss, able to dictate who would be allowed to work in Hollywood and who would not. And they go on, violence in all its forms is integral to the everyday functioning of capitalist society, for it's only through a mix of brute coercion and constructed consent that the system can sustain itself in the best of times. One form of violence cannot be stopped without stopping the others. Vowing to eradicate them all, feminists for the 99% aim to connect the struggle against gender violence to the fight against all forms of violence in capitalist society and against the social system that undergirds them. So that's just another example from this tradition, which is fortunately growing stronger today, of socialist anti-oppression politics that uh, take struggles against oppression very seriously. Okay, so we've, we've presented uh, you know, three different resources that people can draw on in the socialist politics that we're trying to build today and, and into the future. Do you have any thoughts on what, you know, we've said in terms of each other? I would just say that I really liked those Stan Gray quotes. I haven't read that. Um, I think that was beautifully put. Um, got me a bit riled up in a good way, I think. Um, yeah, but I think that's uh, that put it pretty clearly. 
the way that we're we're led to take sides with our our overlords in order to keep others down. Um, because oh, then the reason I thought it was interesting is because you know I've been a a feminist since I was a, a teenager, right? Like that was probably my first political expression. Um, and I definitely was introduced to liberal feminism. And usually the way in liberal feminism, at least from my understanding, um, why patriarchy is bad for men is presented as patriarchy is bad for men because men don't get to talk about their feelings, you know, more because men are then stuck in these rigid masculinity, uh, the, the prison of masculinity, right? Which is real. Like I'm not downplaying that, but that is very different from what Stan Gray is saying, right? Which is that it's not, you know, he's not talking about the, the problems of, of fitting into patriarchal standards as much as he's talking about, you know, how that affects class solidarity, which resonates with me and my new socialist feminism that I've been thinking about. Yeah, that's really well said, Posey. Like how I kind of riff off of that is just not relying on an explanation that does the common thing of erasing the this this class dynamic, like not reducing it to a class dynamic, but not making it invisible so many approaches like make mask that and i think like when we were going through these different topics and then we asked like before we talked about the you know the theory action policy and the vision statement and uh, our eco-socialism and then the key question of like well like why do we have these ideas what is the reason and especially when we're trying to explain to other people and to ourselves and have a clear understanding of why we even have a certain principle. Why is the compass, if we're going to use a compass metaphor, why, you know, an actual compass, the explanation is because of the Earth's magnetic field, but it's just a metaphor. So what is our guiding thing? What is the explanation for it? And um, I feel like through my whole life, like when when there was finally an explanation of how capitalism and a class class-based violence exists it sort of like was it clicked something clicked of like well this is this is like um an explanation that that is so immediately felt and in our lives but so masked so constantly masked and obscured and um and then yeah so uh Obviously, like I, I'm not trying to say that, and therefore oppressions are all just a question of class, not at all. But um, you don't get out of solving the problems of oppression by, you know, collapsing into like a, making class invisible or pretending it's not a thing. So the quote you mentioned from feminism is 99%, David, about um, the solidarity. The first, the first. Um, statements of solidarity came from workers who recognize Harvey Weinstein as a boss, uh, in addition to a predator, not either or, but both. That really resonates with me. Yeah. Uh, something else I want to say about relevance of different ideas, um, especially what you were saying about internationalism and capitalism and imperialism, Teddy, is Kind of, I, I felt like when I first learned, and this was years ago, because this is now the ongoing hell, futurism, you know, techno-futurism of Silicon Valley billionaires, world we live in now, of, you know, the first thing, time I heard of the Elon Musk Mars thing, you know, my first reaction was to recoil, right? Um, and at the time, I didn't really 100% know why. Like, I kind of had inklings. So I was like, isn't this just space colonialism? And the answer is, is yes. But I, I think that the, the more you do learn from past traditions, the more when, you know, that 
things become demystified, even if it is something that seems novel, right? Um, so, you know, space, imperialism is something that's new. Like the idea that we're going to extend capitalism beyond our planet uh, is pretty horrifying, um, but it isn't really new if you understand how capitalism works, right? So I think that that um, is kind of an example to for me about how it it helps me think of think of things and kind of you don't <laughs> nothing then or things can still surprise you, but um, you just have a, a better way of grappling with um, new things and yeah, not being tricked so easily by. Um, the way that, you know, because capitalism is going to, when an old way of convincing people um, dies, it's not like capitalism dies. They come up with new ways. They've got the best and brightest people um, to, to create culture to, to convince us that things are good or, or right. So, yeah, that's my a point I had also written down. I have a question that I don't have an answer to, but it's just, I think that there's a wealth of knowledge that can come from studying traditions and histories. And that was kind of, you know, part of why we wanted to do this episode. But with so many people so atomized and people on the left who come to um, socialist politics in all kinds of different ways, but probably mostly without an organization probably mostly independently through the internet or through one friend or something like that. Do any of you have any ideas or suggestions or even reflections based on your own preparation for this about like how people can feel like less intimidated um, to delve into history or, or maybe that's not the right way to phrase it, but sometimes I, I feel like, Oh, this is so amazing when I'm, in it but sometimes i'm like like how do i even learn some of these things or where to learn it from and i've got a few websites that i kind of check out and that's sort of and i talk to some friends but if you any of you have any thoughts on that i think people might be wondering that question how can they learn from the histories and and build up their own ability to like learn about these things too easy question <laughs> well I mean, I think it's it's a it's a great question. Um, I think, you know, as people are more people are interested in socialist politics today, people often go online and they you know try to find stuff to read or things to listen to, and uh, you know this is the it's a double edged sword the internet right because there's vast quantities of political material available, but figuring out which of it's you know worth giving your time to and which is just better to be ignored that's that's hard if you're new right. Um, to this kind of thing. So this is why I think socialist organizations are really important um, because if you have, you know, if you're, if you're looking to sort these things out, you've done some reading and thinking, but you want to clarify your thinking, it really helps to uh, connect with people who've already thought these things through, you know, to some extent. Um, and so, you know, you're not kind of constantly trying to reinvent the wheel politically. And this is one of the, the I mean, we're Solidarity Winnipeg is a very small group, but we try to provide a bit of a space for people to do that. Uh, and one of the really unfortunate things about the, the weakness of the socialist left in the Canadian state is that there are very few places for people to do that now. Um, it's not difficult to find things to read or, or listen to but, or watch, but um, that kind of more thoughtful, grounded um, discussion, education is less common. And uh, unfortunately, you know, given the state of the socialist left as well, you know, there are lots of groups where people are, are ultimately more interested in just recruiting and reproducing their particular orthodoxy rather than educating people to become independent thinking socialist organizers, which is, I think, what we need to be doing. So I just think uh, we need to try to create spaces. Um, you know, Solid Winnipeg is a small eco-socialist organizing committee. We're trying to do that. If people are listening in other places um, and you're not satisfied with the existing socialist groups that are on option, that are on uh, available to you, then by all means, start a reading group, you know, start a discussion group with like-minded people um, and contact us or somebody else and share resources and, and that kind of thing, because there's a, there's a limit to how much you can do by yourself. 
you know, try to figure this stuff out uh, on your own. Uh, it certainly helps to have some criteria for sorting through what you uh, are encountering and you know, what traditions you want to pay more attention to than, than others. So there's a, a, a good pamphlet um, that David McNally wrote called Social Politics in the Age of Trump, which people can find online. That's a really good starting point uh, if people are interested in learning more about social politics. And, and it talks about both some of the political situation that we find ourselves in or that we found ourselves in a couple of years ago when the pamphlet was written, but also a bit about the history of socialism. Uh, I think that's a, a good place to start. I would just add that it's also okay um, if you run into things that aren't good. <laughs> like, as I said, I used to be a liberal feminist and, you know, sometimes it it takes encountering stuff you disagree with to to find out what you do agree with, right? And and that's a longer way about it, but sometimes that can just even help you exercise that sense of independent thinking and, and critical thinking um, to, to read something and be like, okay, this sounds too good to be true or this sounds convincing, but it seems like this whole thing is missing from this um, or it's too simple or like, am I convinced by their arguments or is it just awesome personalities who speak with emotion and are charming or what, you know, you mentioned Jordan Peterson earlier, David, and, you know, cause there are, which may be upset because whenever I think about Jordan Peterson, I, I get upset, but you know, there are examples of, of smart people who fall for um, horrible, horrible idiots. But I think for the most part, if you found this podcast, I think you're probably able to watch it even a Jordan Peterson video and, and be able to, to think critically about it. And, um, you know, yeah. Cause also even sometimes it, it takes even believing awful ideas for a short period of time or, or, you know, being persuaded by something. And then when you come out the other side, then you can better talk to those people who are now currently in that place. Right. I'm not encouraging people to become alt-right and then become socialist, but, um, even just to be familiar with what does, because there's so much, so much on the internet and there's so many um, different schools of thought that are little petri dishes developing as we speak. Um, so I don't think it's, don't think it's bad to, I just, yeah, I guess I'm just saying you don't, you don't need your reading list to be pure. Um, I guess it's my main point. Well, yeah, I mean, or I was just going to say, like, and what that makes me think about is that if, for example, like one of the things we were saying in this podcast was that like our ideas come from somewhere. They're, they're not in a vacuum. You, uh, you mentioned that Posey too. And like our ideas are, not, are, are, are the, one of the reasons why we would even look at traditions and try to like learn from the, from, from, by not reinventing the wheel and see where things have come from is to be a little more intentional about trying to get the best and to be the most effective. But the whole premise there is that there's ideas we still have to learn and ideas we have to change. Like we would not have to do that if we already had the right ideas. So, you know, there's a way to just build on what you just said, Posey, which I, I think is such a good point about like, yeah, like don't, don't worry about if some of the stuff you have is not the best or whatever, like the, to remember that like you, you still, your ideas have come from somewhere and you still have ideas to learn. And that means you probably have to change some of your ideas. You might not be aware of what ideas you have right now that are like actually not the ideas that you will hold in the future when you encounter better ideas. So, um, so not only like, is it, you know, must you pass through some bad ideas? Like we probably have wrong ideas about some things right now that are not on our radar. And, uh, and I think that that having, having a perspective that, that not only allows for that, but like expects that is you know, you don't want to undermine yourself and feel like you have no confidence about any of your ideas, but like um, having, I think David, you phrased it as like having a revolutionary humility about 
some of what we think. Um, and I think like there's a sobering, <laughs> um, for me, it's like a very kind of like putting in a bit of perspective when I was looking at some of these historical discussions that were uh, very similar to right now. And yeah. Yeah. And because undoubtedly some of the things that we think uh, at the moment are wrong, right? We just don't know what will be proved wrong by the course of events. Um, but of course, why do these ideas matter? At the end of the day, the quality of our politics matter because it, they have, the quality of the politics affects our ability to actually do things in the world, right? To advance struggles, to contribute to moving things forward. And uh, we, you know, it's better to try to start off with the highest quality politics and to continually develop the quality of our politics as we go, right? Um, and so we can save ourselves a lot of uh, wasted effort if we, you know, if you're thinking about it like cooking, right? You don't want to be uh, putting together a savory stew and then adding a lovely dose of Stalinist arsenic um, or something like that, right? Um, we want to be trying to uh, put things together in a way that's going to be mutually complementary and, and to, uh, the, the metaphor will stop there but um we really need to be uh you know give, trying to develop and spread politics that will will help us where we are today to advance struggles to a higher level and there are lots of ways we can avoid reinventing the wheel uh, i think certainly going back into the tradition of socialism from below which rosa luxemburg and clr james and some of the other people uh, whose ideas have been talked about today. Uh, that's, you know, the key tradition we need to base ourselves on. That's my personal perspective. But, I mean, Solidarity Winnipeg is an open organization that's united around certain principles and policies, but, um, you know, it's a place where people who do come from different traditions or are interested in exploring different ideas work together uh, as we try to be constructive organizers in this place we find ourselves. Yeah, totally. And I would just add one more thing that um, if you are, if, you know, I imagine if you're listening to this, you're probably a leftist, maybe a Marxist. And once you commit to that, um, if you ever talk about politics with other people who, who aren't as politically engaged, um, you know, like, I'm not sure where this comes from. Maybe you would know Teddy or David, but the idea that like, Marxists need to know everything in order to be taken seriously. You know, like you need to know everything about history and psychology and every country that's ever existed ever and, you know, current politics and, and all this stuff just in order to defend yourself. Right. So I would also just say um, people that the more, you know, it does help, but also you don't need to know everything to um, be a socialist. Um, that it does help to be continuously learning, um, both in honing your politics and what you can do, and also just you, your life as a person. I believe that, but um, there are a lot of very well-read socialists, and you know you can still you're still welcome, even if you don't um, want to read every book. There are other ways to engage with ideas. The reading books is awesome, and I recommend it. Yeah, I think it's that's a great point because the idea that someone doesn't know enough to, in order to be politically active is is a terrible thing, right? Um, that you know what you know, and we all will continue to learn and learn from each other as we work together. And so, you know, getting involved in you know a socialist organization or a group that's trying to lay the basis for one like Solidarity Winnipeg, it's not about um, how much you know; it's about your willingness to make a commitment, right? If you agree with the politics of the United Group of People and you're willing to, you know, be part of a project, then that's the place to begin. And it's the responsibility of the group, right? The responsibility of the group to, as a collective to share knowledge and to raise everybody up and to recognize everybody who joins that project is going to bring useful, valuable ideas and insights and perspectives. And you need to try to find ways of having discussions where people who are really new to these ideas can, you know, connect with people who've you know, been thinking about them for a long time um, and you know, recognizing again, it's not a one-way thing, right? We learn from each other in all sorts of different ways. It's not just about what we've, what we've read or listened to, but also our experiences um, and the way that we, we think about the politics that we, that we share as we're working together. So just it's a constant effort to try to make a group that can do that. But 
I think, again, it's, it's really valuable because it, you can do things in that kind of a, a space that you can't when people are just sitting around by themselves in front of their laptops, um, you know, trying to figure stuff out. Yeah, this isn't an answer to the question of like, where did it come from definitively? But I do think that there's a really obvious overlap between like the very socialized and capitalism value of like, we can't do things for ourselves. You need to be an expert. Experts do everything. Uh, regular people can't do anything that easily bleeds into the kind of like, well, um, you know, I don't know enough. I haven't read enough. I don't have a PhD. I don't have. Um, this many passages committed to memory that I can recall the snap of a finger, um, the idea that you're just inadequate and someone else is smarter and better than you and therefore more entitled to have agency. <laughs> I think that's a very um, conveniently, uh, what is the joke, right? Like, show me the Venn diagram of, um, you know, values that uh, make you an obedient worker that you know it's just like oh, the perfect circle of these are internal criticisms you can have to yourself and um what would really help a manager manage <laughs> manage you so i don't know like the exact story of where it comes from but i know that it's worth um remembering that like those feelings don't help you and they're not they're not accurate Maybe we should just wrap up uh, by saying that if people are interested in learning more about Solidarity Winnipeg, they can find us uh, at solidaritywinnipeg.ca or on Instagram or on Facebook or on Twitter. And on our website, you can sign up for our newsletter so you don't have to rely on the social industry to get our occasional updates. And if you have any questions, don't hesitate to email us um, and reach out. Hope you've enjoyed this episode and found it useful.